0: Well, if you happen to be here for the uh, first time, I hope you'll come again next Lord's Day. Next week we're going to get back to what we usually do, teaching our way through God's Word, uh, a book, a chapter, a verse at a time. And we're going to dive into Acts 14 uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, I've already started studying that. I can't wait to to get back to it. But uh, I'm going to do one more week away from our regular series. My normal New Year message got pushed back a week because I wasn't ready to ready for prime time after the ablation that I had, which has worked outstandingly, thank you. And um, then uh, my, my my sermon became a series, and I said, okay, well, I'll take um, three weeks to do it. Well, I didn't finish it in three weeks, so as I said, the part about advice on handling the uh, presidential election year, that's in pamphlet form out in front. And I'm going to do one more thing. This is not part of the New Year series, but think of it as a as a bonus. I've had an issue that, there's an issue that has been lurking for centuries and uh, the questions have come to me many times in the last six months or so. So uh, I had just uh, been talking with Scott Basolo about what was going to be taught uh, in the coming year and I said I think I'd like to repeat that and uh, I got his attaboy. Notice he's not here today but, um, no, he'll, he'll, he will be uh, in full agreement with this because he's already heard the earlier version of it. I want to repeat something that I did 12 years ago. So let's dive in. You can uh, see the simple, kind, generous, loving title, Calvinism and Arminianism, No Thank You. Now what do I mean by that? Well, um, John Calvin... Actually, Jean Calvin, he was French. He was a French pastor, theologian, and reformer. He carried out most of his ministry in Geneva, Switzerland, and the story of his ministry is fascinating reading. In 1536, now get the time frame, Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517, so 20 years into the Protestant Reformation. Uh, John Calvin wrote his famous book on theology titled Institutes of the Christian Religion. That was 1536. Then, uh, just before his death in 1564, he published a greatly expanded version of the Institutes, which still stands as one of the most significant theology works of all time. Now, Um, Would you believe that in order to teach his doctrine as effectively as possible, Calvin came up with the ingenious plan to um, produce a simple acronym that would summarize the essential elements of the gospel, and especially the essential elements of the doctrine of salvation. And particularly to help teach it to children, the acronym that Calvin produced was TULIP, And that helps people remember the famous five points of Calvinism. Now a lot of people don't realize that that's how the acronym TULIP began. The reason is that's not where it began. That's not where it came from. I made that up because I knew that would sound plausible to a whole lot of people. And I want you to realize that that's not the source of this. It isn't for teaching the doctrine uh, to children. And it's ludicrous to say that it came from Calvin because he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion in Latin. And then his final version was published in both Latin and Calvin's native tongue of French. And have you ever tried to translate an acronym from one language into another? You know that my initials in Russian are D D X. Of course, that's what James Joseph Harris, it doesn't work to to, to go from one language to another. But that ridiculous explanation makes as much sense as what most people actually do understand about Calvinism and Arminianism. The origin of TULIP as we know it goes back only to the early 20th century in English. 500 years after, or 400 years after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Nowhere in the writings of John Calvin can you find a five-point summary of his understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. The five points did not originate with Calvin. They did not originate in Geneva. It was among some of the um, Reformed church theologians in the Netherlands, Dutch theologians who were the source of this, and among those theologians in the Netherlands was a man named Jacobus Arminius. He died in 1609, so keep the chronology here, Reformation begins in 1517, Institutes of the Christian Religion written in 1536, revised in 1564, Jacobus Arminian, Arminius died in 1609. In 1610, I researched, that was after he was dead. Some of the followers of Arminius produced what is known as the five points of remonstrance. Now I'll bet you've gone all week long and never once did the word remonstrance, remonstrance tumble out of your of your um, mouth. What does remonstrous means? It means rejection. That was five points at which this little circle of Dutch theologians rejected the doctrinal statements that had become most widely understood among the reformers in Europe. Uh, And by the way, if you were to translate the points of remonstrance the way that they were logically arranged and originally published, the order wouldn't, even if you did put in English, it wouldn't be tulip, it would be ultip. But that doesn't sound as catchy. And especially if you're trying to stick a finger in the eye of a bunch of Dutch people, it's more effective to insult their tulips. (laughs) Now, the ensuing debates, they went on for a little while. Uh, uh, 1610 that was published, and finally they had a big meeting of uh, theologians from all over Europe. They met in the city of Dordrecht in the Netherlands. So they went; it was a home game for the followers of Arminius. And uh, this meeting was called the Synod of Dort. If you want to insult somebody for their theology, just call them a Dort. All right, and you'll you'll remember that. The five points of remonstrance were refuted by the Synod of Dort. And they wrote a summary statement. It was not five letters. was not five words. Not five paragraphs. It was an 18-page doc- uh, document called The Canons of Dort, which went in depth into uh, refuting the five points of rejection that started this whole uh, argument. And the, the canons of Dort is still one of the most widely accepted documents among Reformed uh, believers. Now all this began, remember, a year after Jacobus Arminianus, Arminius died and decades after John Calvin died. He'd been dead for uh, 40 plus years before this uh, hit the fan. Arminius never heard of Arminianism, let alone did he start it. Calvin never heard of Calvinism, let alone did he start it. And my friend, I want to let you know God will never ask you if you are a Calvinist or an Arminian. Today, my goal is to help fellow Christians remain (coughs) faithful to the Word of God without getting swept aside into usually fruitless arguments and endless discussions about overworked, emotionally charged words. Instead, we need to learn to, to confine our discussions to God's intended meaning of each passage of His Word in its context. Now, there are good people on both sides who have debated these two systems since 1610. Now, I never met Jacobus Arminius. I never met John Calvin. But I would dare say if we were to sit down at a table with them today and you would say, I am afraid I'm on my way to hell. How can I be rescued? You'd get the same answer from both of them. This is an intramural debate between people who believe the gospel. Now, there's a background that brought me to the point of having the nerve to actually record this and have it on the internet. It's been there for 12 years and it's been kind of uh, useful. Um, Some people have left Heritage Bible Church because of it. Uh, some people have never come to Heritage Bible Church because they heard that first, and that's that's uh, sad. But here's the background. For uh, the last 20, well, all 20 years of Heritage Bible Church, for the last 22 years, I've been involved with uh, ministering to and alongside uh, Russian Christians. And somehow, through the course of their time prior to the Uh, time of communism and then it kind of became solidified during communism. They were taught to fear Calvinism and to distrust American Christians who might come to Russia and try to subvert their theology. That's the situation into which I was asked to come and, and prepare documents and, and teach and help train other pastors to teach uh, Russian pastors and church planters. So I had to figure out how to address things without getting sucked into a vortex of an argument, how to, how to keep things on track. And so I, I worked out some ways to, to work through it in the class times. And eventually, on about my seventh or eighth trip to, um, to Tombov, I was teaching uh, the doctrine of salvation. I think that was the one time I was doing it. And, and I came up with this little uh, presentation and I talked about it a little bit when I got home and finally uh, someone persuaded, well, you really ought to make that into a sermon. Well... It's kind of more like a lesson than a sermon, but get over it. I'll be back to Acts um, next week. So that led to the 2011 version of this sermon, and this question has been, it kind of seems to come in waves, and the wave has crested recently, and, and I probably know less than 20 times in the last six months, somebody's asked me uh, where we stand or where I stand on this question. So I'm going to bring it to you again uh, today. Now remember, the context is, I'm dealing with people who thought they were Arminians, oh, they were terrible at Arminianism, they'd been taught to hate Calvinism, and they had no idea what Calvinism was. And I'm trying to teach God's word without letting the slings and arrows uh, do any damage. So I came up with this rather meant-to-be whimsical outline. Number one, don't call me Calvinist. Number two, don't call me Arminian. And as time permits, we'll say a couple of words about God's sovereignty and man's choice. So the, the backbone of this alleged sermon is basically uh, two lists. And let's start with the list, why I don't want to be called Calvinist. Now, let's be, f- make full disclosure here. Since I am affiliated with ministries that are historically much more Calvinistic than Arminian... I feel like I'm more qualified to critique my side of the debate, our side of the, um, of the debate. And I also want to make it clear, if we were ever to show up at the gates of heaven, I don't think that's quite how it works, but if we find out there's one gate, but there are two lines leading to the entrance of the gate, you must choose one of those two lines, and one says... Calvinist's here, and the other says, Arminian's here, if I go to the Arminian line, they're going to kick me out. All right? So I'm more Calvinistic than Christian, but I'm not going to come into the gates of heaven, and they say, why should I let you in? I said, John Calvin said said, Tulip. No, uh, that's not going to work. So I have for 20 plus years been working very closely with marvelous servants of the Lord in Russia who come from a background openly hostile to Calvinism. But Mm -hmm. I've been able to help them understand that what they oppose is actually quite a caricature of Calvinism. And so when we study together, I always issue this ground rule. And you've probably heard me do it here. My ground rule is we will discuss the exegesis of any passage in the Bible but we will not debate theological soundbites. And so far it's worked quite well. And uh, it eventually led to my list. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. Why I don't want to be called Calvinist. Number one, most people don't really know what Calvinism means. They, they may think they know, but most don't. Uh, one of those pastors from that... Uh, Sort of allegedly Arminian background once told me why he opposed Calvinism. He said Calvinism is very bad. It means you can. Be- it means that you believe that you can receive Christ and then live any way you want. And I said, you know, I, I don't know one Calvinist on the planet who believes that. That's a caricature of the truth and. Twisting it into an error. Number two, uh, Calvinism misrepresents some of the beliefs of John Calvin. As I said, John Calvin never came up with five points of Bible doctrine. Some of his followers, and actually was much broader than just the followers of Calvin in Geneva, all of the, uh, the collective decision of the reformed theologians of Europe was to reject the five points of rejection, to refute the five points of uh, remonstrance. And those who have labeled the famous five points as Calvinism, they state things much more strongly than Calvin did. Now, it's, it's a point of debate, and legitimate debate, and I hope friendly, good-hearted debate, but I think it's pretty clear Calvin did not hold to the five points for which he is blamed, not all five of them. Now, you can debate that, but you know, we'll get to heaven one way or the other. Number three, the arrogance of many Calvinists is disgusting. There has been kind of a renewal of interest in reformed theology uh, in America over the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And among that, there was a movement that young, restless, and reformed. So they didn't want anything to do with the old guys. They're restless. There's something wrong. We've got to stir the pot and make this happen. And we are uh, diabolically, not diabolically, but intensely reformed. you got to go for the... You've got to be a five-pointer. And so some of them have presented Calvinism with no patience, with no compassion, with, with no grace toward those who haven't agreed uh, with them. And that's interesting because they're fond of calling the five points of Calvinism the doctrines of grace. These are the doctrines of God's grace, and you better believe them. You know, just this—it's—it's it's an incongruity. Number four. If you want to judge me on five points of doctrine, you're robbing me of at least 95 more. Now, the great doctrines of Christianity are rich. The, the, the issues raised by the five points of Calvinism are very significant issues that, that are very much anchored in God's Word. But you can never fully grasp the depth of all of doctrine in one lifetime. And how silly is it to believe that five points summarize everything important to us. So don't call them doctrines of grace and then be arrogant and act like that's the beginning and end of any discussion. Number five, many Calvinists use Calvinism as a hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the uh, science and the art of Bible interpretation, the principles for interpreting the Bible. And some use Calvinism like a, like a magic decoder ring. Look at any passage, you look at it through the lens of Calvinism, and you know before you study the passage that it's going to reinforce your belief in these five points. That's using it as a hermeneutic where you interpret a passage Based upon a conclusion you've already drawn that you import into that passage. Uh, I, throw a, uh, I throw a flag on that every time I see it. Yeah, it's dangerous and it's not honest and it happens in a lot of places, not just in this debate. Now let's get a little more specific about some things. Another reason I don't want to be called a Calvinist is First John 2.2 2 means what it says. Most First John two two says, and He Himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's a straightforward, simple present tense declarative sentence. All right, it means what it says. But a full blown five pointer will explain to you that that verse teaches that Jesus actually is the propitiation only for the sins of some, even though that's exactly the opposite of what the words say. That's a problem. And that's on my side of the fence. Another one, 1 Timothy 4.10 means what it says. What does it say? We have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men especially of believers. So who did the savior who is the savior for all men and there's something special about believers. They're the ones among all men who believe. Most Calvinists explain that that verse uh, explain that verse as if it teaches that Jesus is not the savior of all men. And they say, well, there's, he, he kind of, you know, saves unbelievers until they make it to hell. Keeps them alive. It's ridiculous. That's not what the passage actually says. Here's another verse you'll be familiar with. I don't want to be called a Calvinist because John, John 3.16 means what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most Calvinists will explain to you that if you really understand things, God did not send His Son so that the world could be saved. Most Calvinists believe God does not love everyone in the world equally, even though the words say exactly the opposite. And Calvinists love to take the word world and they'll give it about three or four different meanings and pluck them out as they want to and plug them in in different verses. I think the Holy Spirit wasn't that obtuse about the words that He, that he chose. Number nine, many Calvinists, and I tried to think how can I say this in a way that'll let me you know, be a little whimsical with my Russian brothers, so pardon me if this sounds harsh. Many Calvinists snuff out man's will under God's sovereignty. Now God is sovereign and uh, His will is going to be accomplished on earth. Understanding the will of God really is a a very important uh, thing and it will... I mean, you have no basis upon which to not be anxious unless God is sovereign. If He's not in control, you ought to be scared. You ought to be anxious. He is in control. But while He is in control, you have the opportunity, the invitation, and the responsibility to make decisions which affect your eternal destiny. We cannot deny man's responsibility. And we dare not say that some people, and this is one that has been brought up to me, well, if you're a Calvinist, then you believe that some people can't be saved. And I want to say, would you please bring to me a person who's tried to be saved and couldn't? Would you bring me someone who says, I want to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ, and I can't? Would you show me one verse that says, God created some people and doesn't want them to be saved. That's uh, Calvinists kind of snuff out the human responsibility um, side of that under God's sovereignty. But 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What is God's will about man's salvation? He doesn't want anybody to perish. Now, then you've got to sort out, well, some will perish, all right? God is sovereign. We'll work that through. Number 10, the Bible does not teach double predestination. Now, predestination, fancy word, uh, predestination and election, the teaching that before the foundation of the world, God chose people to be saved. The Bible teaches that. It says it. But nowhere does the Bible teach that God specially created individuals for the purpose of condemning them to the lake of fire. And And people say, well, you can't teach one without the other. If there's 10 pairs of socks in your drawer and you opened one this morning and you pulled out one, you chose that one and you rejected the other nine, well, that's a terrible analogy. And that's not what the Bible actually says. Number 11, a bit repetitive, but this is uh, one where I don't believe you can find this in Calvin's uh, teachings. The Bible does not teach limited atonement. That is the idea that... um, uh, that Christ specifically came to make atonement only for the sins of some people and not for anybody else. Now, you believe in a form of limited atonement unless you believe that everybody's going to heaven, right? Not everybody's going to be in heaven. So the atonement won't be applied to everybody, but that's different than saying Christ did not die for the sins of anybody except this small minority that will be saved again great worthy discussions there but i don't think calvin taught that number 12 man chooses to believe or to reject christ it's a legitimate choice it's a real decision many passages in the bible call people to make the choice to believe in christ and they warn against rejecting him those are legitimate invitations to make legitimate choices that have eternal consequences, and men and women are responsible for their choices. You've heard us often quote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, um, I guess Paul wasn't a Calvinist. What's he doing begging people to be reconciled to God if God created them to send them to hell? There's a great disconnect there. Number, number 13, finally. It is my, um, my humble belief Calvin would be appalled by people using his name as a heading on theology. John Calvin devoted his life to great theology, to preaching through God's word, verse by verse, book by book. And as a humble man of God, I believe John Calvin would hate to hear people use his name as the title for their doctrine. And frankly, I think Calvinism as it is portrayed depreciates the, the fullness of the ministry of John Calvin. There's so much more. Go ahead and read his commentary on some passage. It's, it's profound. Okay, I want to say, don't call me Calvinist. I also want to say... Don't call me Arminian. Why I don't want to be called Arminian? Well, number one, as I said, and many of these parallel the other side of it, most people don't really know what Arminianism means. And so when you use the term and people have them loaded with emotional baggage and not understanding anything about church history, um, it's a problem. Most people know even less About Jacobus Arminius than they know about John Calvin. And when Arminius's followers rejected the biblical doctrine of individual election to salvation, it touched off a big debate in the the Dutch church. But after Arminius's death, his followers were the ones who threw down the gauntlet. Five Articles of remonstrance. We reject these five things, Mr. Luther, Mr. Calvin, Mr. Zwingli, and all the others. And that was the beginning of the discussion, which led to the 1618 Synod of Dorth, Dorth, in which the five points were the responses to the five points of rejection. Keep that in mind. Most people don't really know that that's what Arminianism is all about. Number two, I'll say what I said a minute ago, to judge me on five points of doctrine is to rob me of at least 95 more. Number three, many Arminians use Arminianism as a hermeneutic, as their filter through which they interpret the Bible. Some of my most frustrating conversations about the Bible have been with Arminian brothers who who try to explain that passages like John 10, 28, um, uh, no one can snatch them from my hand, how they don't really mean that. And and I've actually had somebody, well, yeah, nobody can snatch you out of God's hands, but you can jump. What verse was that? I don't... uh, I don't see that one. Anytime we allow one text to overrule another, instead of saying this says this, this says this, together, what do they say? How do they harmonize? How do they fit together? All right, I'll get specific on this side of the ledger as well. Uh, Don't call me Arminian because Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 means what it says. What does it say? Just as He chose us, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will and by the way, that's the beginning of a sentence that goes on for most of the page in your Bible fantastic um, statement of doctrine that passage teaches before the foundation of the world, God chose each believer to Be adopted as his child. And by the way, the Greek grammar means God chose for himself by his will. That does not negate man's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But it does mean God chose who will believe. And an Arminian remonstrates against that. Doesn't believe it. Number five. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 means what it says. That verse says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and by faith. It says, simple declarative statement. God, that's the subject, has chosen that's the verb, direct object, you, why? For salvation. That's not a complicated sentence. And it means God has chosen you for salvation. It doesn't mean God chose you, or God chose to invite you. Now, does he invite? Yes, the universal call to salvation. But it says... If you've believed, it's because God chose you. Didn't you have a choice? Yes, you had a choice. But it was God's choice before the foundation of the world. Number six, I lumped some things together that I've taught in uh, Russia and elsewhere. 1 Peter Peter 1, 1 to 5 means what it says. That one majors on the issue of the security of salvation or perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. And if you teach that it's possible to lose salvation, that contradicts with Peter's words there, God's word through Peter, six ways. I've got a little um, one-page document on that if you ever want to ask me uh, for it. Number seven. John 10, 28 means what it says. I alluded to this. Um, what does John ten twenty eight say? In the words of Jesus, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hands. If a person who is saved could ever again become lost, Jesus didn't know that. Or he lied here. Eternal cannot be temporary. There's no such thing as temporary eternal life. Never perish cannot mean except sometimes some of them perish. The words are are clear, and the passage needs to be harmonized with other passages without allowing one to negate another. Number eight is the mirror image of. Another thing that I said on the other side, many Arminians snuff out God's sovereignty under man's will. We cannot deny that God is sovereign, including the crystal clear statements of the Bible that He's sovereign in choosing who will be saved without getting ourselves into a problem. The, the standard um, Arminian viewpoint is foreknowledge, predestination, election. It means God, because He's outside of time, He looked into time. He looked into the future. He saw who was going to believe in Him, so He chose them. That does not mean God chose for Himself before the foundation of the world. It means the opposite of that. That means eternal destiny is 100% the decision of man and God has to adapt to the decisions of man. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. If you're going to say that that's the definition of foreknowledge about salvation, you really got a problem when you get to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. You might want to look that up and it says that by the foreknowledge of God, Christ is the Savior. Are you really telling me God peeked through the curtains of time and said, <gasps> it's jesus i'll pick him you cannot have the meaning of the word change on the same page of your bible from one verse to a little further down the page that's a big one and it's just as wrong by the way on the other side when you act as if the decisions of people don't matter all right number nine and this one's a little bit more esoteric, but Arminianism leads to open theism. Open theism is the, is the modern heresy that God is learning as He goes. God is adapting as He goes. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail, but just suffice it to say, that's the fruit that springs from the seed of unbridled Arminianism. Number 10, Arminianism agrees with Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism even if you've driven a semi this week I'll bet you never said Pelagianism what is that? Pelagianism is the belief that mankind was not directly affected by the sin of Adam you have no guilt in Adam you are guilty only of your own individual sins Uh, it is Frankly, the Roman Catholic view, and they say Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. There's a, a way to waffle on what you mean by that, but either way, it's the denial of First Corinthians 15:22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Number 11, Arminianism denies total depravity. Total depravity—that's the T of tulip. That's the theological shorthand for the belief that the effects of sin affect every part of a person. That in relation to God there's no good inherent within the sinner and there's nothing within a sinner which can turn him to God. Arminianism holds that man can indeed turn to God purely by his own will. Even though the Bible says you can't unless you're made alive in Christ. So it's a, it's a denial. Well, they started out, well, why did they come up with the T version? Well, because the remonstrator said, we don't believe that. We reject that. Number 12, pretty obvious, God chooses who will be saved. There are a lot of passages, more than the ones I've just quoted, um, that say God chooses who will be saved, and Arminians deny that those passages mean what they say. Now, if... If you choose to reject the doctrine of total depravity, or if you choose to reject the doctrine of election, perhaps you can reserve a seat next to Arminius's followers uh, uh, in heaven. You can say, I don't like that doctrine. You can say, I think that doctrine's unfair. You can say, I don't want to hear that doctrine preached. But you can't say and be honest, that's not what the Bible says. And that's a problem, huge problem with Arminianism. And then finally, I really believe that Jacobus Arminius would be appalled to have his name associated with a theological fight. Um... He never set out to attach his name to a set of doctrines any more than did John Calvin. Um, As a child of God seeking to understand God's word, I'm, I'm confident both those guys would hate to have their names attached to these theological debates. Don't forget, it was the followers of Arminius after his death who attached his name to those beliefs. It was... Um, people who interpreted the 18 pages of the um, Canons of Dort to say this is summarized in this five-point refutation of the five points of rejection and they've stuck Calvin's name on it. Now in light of the emotionally charged arguments that make discussing Arminianism versus Calvinism almost always unfruitful, oh and And by the way, don't do this online. Oh, another whole subject. See everything in my pamphlet about dealing with a a presidential election. Don't do it online. Okay, I suggest since these labels are emotionally charged and almost always unfruitful, let's call each other what the Bible actually calls us Please accept my invitation. We'll discuss any passage of the Bible and what it means, and we'll discuss how to harmonize it with all the others. But stay away from the attempts to beat one another into submission under the weight of man-made theological systems. Go ahead, call me anything that the Bible does. Christian, not not, we have one in the room. We have more than one in the room. We have one called Christian. Christian was a pejorative name, those little Christ's. But we know what it means. Call me a Christian. Call me a disciple, a follower of Christ. Call me a believer. I trust in him. Call me a saint made holy in him. Call me a brother. We're, we're family of God. By my function, you can call me pastor. That's perfectly fine. Do not call me, please, reverend. As soon as I got ordained, I looked that up and said, nope, not, don't want to be called by that one. One to be revered. No, 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 no. Call me pastor if you want. And you know, Jim works just fine. And there's other names that are legitimate and other names that I've been called as well. Now, (laughs) God's sovereignty and man's choice. We're we're, we're pretty much um, out of time, but I just want to say a couple of things. Um, I'm not even a little bit interested in finding middle ground between Calvinism and Arminianism. There isn't middle ground. The reformers were pretty clear what they taught. The remonstrators said, we reject some of the things you taught. What's the middle ground? That's not, you know, you can't say, that. you know, two football teams are playing today. I like this one, you like that one. Let's find some middle ground. You know, if this team plays this team, let's have team number three win this game. You can't do that. Um, I'm not interested in helping people uh, to compromise or to pick and choose until they come up with their own system that they really like. I just want to help you understand God's Word in its context and fit it together with all the others. And one of the things I came up with that I said in Russia that I want to say to you, I refuse to defend any theological statement that requires me to explain why any verse of the Bible doesn't mean what it says. And that's a problem on both sides of the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. Now what about God's sovereignty and man's choice? Man is totally in control. I mean, uh, God is totally in control. Man is completely responsible. You are legitimately invited to be saved. And you know, uh, uh, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Well, That's legitimate. But God is in charge. Both of those are true. Calvinists cross the line when they overrule passages that teach man's choices and responsibilities. Arminians cross the line when they overrule the clear statements about election and predestination and foreknowledge. Both of them cross a line when they're arrogant or self-righteous or disrespectful in the name of defending what the Bible says. Teaches and both cross a line if they call into question the salvation of people on the other side of this debate just because they're on the other side of this debate. Well, that's that's plenty. Do you know, um, God sovereignly determined that you would hear this sermon today? All right, that's a little bit, a little bit tongue in cheek, but he did. Now I have to ask you he is calling you to be faithful to his word and to graciously and tenaciously proclaim the gospel. What are you going to do with it? And let's pray. Father how we do thank you for your word for its clarity. Indeed we thank you for its depth. We thank you for its complexity and that we can continue always to feast our souls on your word and, and be fed every time. Father, um, help us not to contribute to fruitless discussions and certainly from discussing the loftiness of theology in a carnal manner. Have your way with us to that end. Use us for your glory. Help us to be known for the gospel not for debating. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.